All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. We begin tonight a, a new message from the prophet farmer in the places of power in Israel, speaking to those who are most prominent and influential, whether politically or religiously. It should not surprise us that once again Amos will not hold back. He has uh, shown uh, no lack of courage up to this point, given the audience that he has, and that is going to continue specifically as he delivers what the text calls a lament, something we'll spend some time talking our way through. Amos chapter 5, we're going to read all of verses 1 through 17. Obviously, we won't get to it all, but I think that is one text, and that's going to be the focus over the next couple of weeks. Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest He break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who turn to justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. He made the Pleiades. And Orion, he turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, Though you've built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just, taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live, so the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. 
there's a phrase that we use that really comes from a, a very ancient origin, could not identify a specific period of time, but it, it goes back many, many centuries, and it appears to have originated in the Arab culture. It originated in the days when camels were used as beasts of burden to carry significant amounts of items of whatever kind. Whatever was needed to be transported from one place to another, camel was the go-to animal. And there were men who were experienced in being able to load the animal to just the right point. If you went too far, the camel would either just sit down and not move, or you could cause significant injury to the animal. And so so they, they really worked hard to figure out that delicate line, the point at which they could load the animal without being it being too much. And so eventually, a phrase was developed that described the moment when you added just enough of the wrong weight. Just too much. It was said to have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, it's interesting when you go to, to read through the history of this kind of thing, turns out that in English, that they, they tried to change this phrase to the feather that broke the horse's back. Now, I don't know if any of you are, have heard that phrase. I was not familiar with that, all right? But I'm not a horse person. So I found it interesting. There was a time at which they tried to change it, right? To make it a little bit more Englishy, perhaps. I don't know. But it seems like that, that, that Arab image has stuck with us so that we use the language. That, that, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. But being efficient, modern people that we are, we've taken that and made it smaller, right? We've truncated that to what? That was the last straw. Yeah, that's a lot more efficient, isn't it, right? Give me two words instead of a whole phrase. And, and, and how do we use this? We use the phrase last straw to describe that moment where somebody finally steps over the line, right? That's it. I, I was patient and patient and patient. I would give, give, and give until you got right here. That was the last straw. Now, sometimes we might claim it was a last straw and we're just being dramatic, all right? Or we're going to get run over again. I mean, sometimes like we might tell our kids, no, that was the last straw, all right? That's it. I'm burning all of your toys. So we, but do we, I mean, does it ever happen? Probably not. Okay. But when we do use that, that phrase, it's seriously, right? It is possible that, that somebody used their last straw on us, right? And that was it. As soon as that happens, patience is no longer my response. Mercy, grace, whatever language you want to use, that's it. One of the things that I think is striking about the book of Amos, and it it really comes out here, and this is what we'll press as we kind of introduce ourselves to this next message in Amos. Amos is is a prophet that to me is different than some of the others. So far what we've read, it sounds to me, so Amos is not prophesying to a people who have received the judgment, 
but the prophecy that he is proclaiming sounds inevitable. So it has a bit of a different feel. Even a bit of a different feel than, say, Hosea or Joel before it. In some of those cases, there still seemed to be this plea being extended to repent and return unto the Lord and seek God's favor again. And though that language shows up in Amos, I'll contend it's being used with a bit of irony. And I'll get to that in just a moment, all right? I think Amos is a prophet who was sent to Israel... Yes, to preach the message, and yes, to say that the way out of your, the problem to come is to repent. But I also think Amos is delivering a message that is making it clear to Israel that, that God is saying this was the last straw. Whatever it was, God is saying this is the last straw. Your sin has reached a place. It has filled up the cup. This, that your, your, your idolatry... Your injustice, your oppression, your perversion of God's law, your expectation that you can worship God on your own terms, all of this is the straw that's breaking the camel's back. This is it. And judgment is coming. I think in Amos chapter 5 in particular, Amos lays out a message now that, that is designed to communicate just this. To the people of power in Israel, not only is he laying out again the indictment against them, the judgment to come, but I think now he is calling them to lament over the inevitable. Judgment is coming upon them. And this, and he's going to use, in order to communicate this, and, and when you say, when I say Amos, you, rec- you, know, you always recognize, I, I do believe this is God's message, right? God's message through his prophet. But it's an interesting tool that he's going to use here, calling on Amos to preach this message as a lament. And, and we'll, we'll note why, because I, I, I think this is a way to effectively communicate to Israel, this is a done deal. Your sin has reached its your sin reached God's breaking point, so to speak, and, and you've, you've committed the last straw. So tonight, we're going to take a look at Amos chapter 5. We're just going to get into, the, into the, the first little bit of it here, and you see you have some notes. I'm going to do this a little bit differently because I think the first three verses are going to offer us a bit of introduction to this. And so, if, if we go on to the next slide, you'll see uh, as, as we... Is there one right before that? Maybe I didn't do it right. That's the first one? Yeah? Okay. All right. So you'll see that. So, you know, on, on your notes, um, Amos chapter 5 is um, verses 1 through 17. It, it, it is a way for Amos to communicate to Israel that God's judgment is inevitable. It is going to be unavoidable. And in order to do this, he, he crafts it in the form of a lament. So I want to take just a few minutes and look at that, and especially verses 1 through 3. We're going to fill out some points here in just a minute, or at least get to one of them. Before we do that, I just want you to note these first three verses and some of the features here that I think really drive this home, that, that he's talking to them about something that's absolutely going to happen. All right, verse 1, hear this word which I take up against you. That's not an unusual phrase, by the way. We've seen that in Amos. This is typical. 
hear, pay attention, give your full mind and ear and eye to what I'm saying here. Hear this word. It's a word. It's, it's indictment language. This is legal language. It would, it would be like a defendant being told by a judge, stand up and listen to the charges against you. All right, that's what this is. God's leveling out charges against them. But then he describes it as a lamentation. Now, that, that's not an unusual word to you. If you have any kind of Bible, um, you know, familiarity, there's a whole book of the Bible, right, called Lamentations. There are some of you in this room that know it really well, because I preached through it, and I'm sure you remember all of that, all right? You remember every little bit of that? I did preach through Lamentations. That's a slog, by the way, all right? Going through the book of Lamentations is tough. And so the entire book is a, is a lamentation. We know there are laments in the Psalms, and a lament is just this. It is a song or a declaration of pain and sorrow usually associated with death. Not always associated with death, but, it, but in a lot of cases, it's associated with death either physically or spiritually. And death then often, you know, carrying certain metaphorical, symbolic ideas. So, like Jeremiah's lamentation, it's functionally a lamentation over the death of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has died at the hands of the Babylonians. And the lamentation then is the song of sorrow and grief. Uh, the psalmist will often use lamentations, will have laments, and these laments are very often... Uh, related to at least the threat of death. My circumstances have become so dire and lamenting then the pain and sorrow of life. Now, we use the word maybe not quite as intensely, right? right? We might talk about something unfortunate as being, oh, that's lamentable. But when you read the word in the Bible, you should bring with it a little bit more intensity. If something is a lament in the Bible, it is it is something that it, that's racked with grief, all right? It is filled up with grief. It's not just unfortunate. It's not just, oh, that's kind of sad. It's, this is devastating. This is, this is the moment where, if you've ever been in one of those moments where you think, if one more thing happens to me, that, that's, that's where you are with a lament, all right? So this is deep grief. So it's interesting that this is now what Amos is called to proclaim to Israel, this lamentation, and here's, here's why it's interesting. If we go on to the next slide, it's because this is a particular kind of lament that's somewhat unique because it hasn't happened yet. In, in other words, Amos is told to declare a lament. The people are called to lament over events that haven't yet transpired. That makes this a prophetic lament. And it would be a little unnerving, quite frankly. He's telling them to weep and to wail and to grieve and to sorrow over something that hasn't happened, something that they don't think is going to happen. Something that the, that the powers that be in Israel cannot imagine would ever happen. They're the people of God. They're covenant people, right? Oh, yeah, they've committed some boo-boos here and there. But come on, we're still the covenant people. Surely God won't judge us. I mean, yes, He would judge the Philistines. He'd probably judge Judah. But not. He's not going to judge Israel. Surely not. But Amos is telling them, no, you, it's time now. Go ahead and lament what is, symbolically speaking, the 
death of your nation, you are going to die. In a functional sense. The Assyrians, they don't know this yet, neither does Amos, but what's going to happen is God's going to use the Assyrians as a tool of judgment. They're going to come in much like the Babylonians will eventually do in Judah. And the Assyrians are going to come in and they're going to decimate the land. And they are going to exile people. They are going to scatter people. And so he's calling them to go ahead and lament over this. Now, this is why I, I think, and why I think you find the best uh, commentaries on this and discussion about this suggesting this. this. This is why I think we understand Amos 5 being a message about what's going to happen. This is inevitable. It's not that God would not forgive if they expressed repentance and remorse. It's just saying He knows they're not going to do it. Since you're not going to engage in the, in the grief and weeping that would come with repentance, you, you should go ahead and lament now because death and destruction is coming. And, and so He gives us this kind of prophetic lament, something that is inevitable. And notice how He describes it, verse 2. The virgin of Israel has fallen. Interesting use of the word virgin. And the reason why he's saying that this image, of course, is designed to speak symbolically, not so much of how we might associate that with purity in, in a biblical sense, more in the, in the sense of a young woman. So what, what he's doing here is he's saying, he's just using a virgin as, to stand in for Israel, saying, here is a virgin, here is a young woman, here is one on the, the cusp of life, right? Ready to enter into to the, to the prime and heart of life. Everything is in front of her, has fallen. And it goes on to say, she'll rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. It is language of death. Again, it's in a spiritual or symbolic sense. Nonetheless, still considered that way. Here, here is Israel lying, and notice how he emphasizes in her land. The promised land. The land that should have been flowing with milk and honey for them, right? The land that should have been producing nothing but blessing for them. Now here she is, dead in the street, and no one's going to be able to raise her up. No one's going to be there to be able to help her. Here was, here was one full of potential. Everything was in front of her. She took advantage of it, wasted it. So, so now, again, it's the last straw. God is, God is going to judge and there's going to be a devastating kind of judgment. So it's interesting language here. Because Amos is telling the folks in Israel, you have everything in front of you. You have all the potential in the world God had designed His people to be a holy nation, right? A, a, a royal priesthood. They were to be a blessing to the nations. God always intended for the Jews to be a place from which the glory and righteousness of God would shine, not just for them, but for every tribe, tongue, and nation. God intended for them to be the, the, the place from which He would make His name known. They had they had every advantage, every potential. And, and here they are going after anything and everything but the one true God. And so, they should lament because the virgin has died. Israel has fallen, and there will be no one there to raise her up. This, this by the way, should be understood to mean that he's not saying she's fallen and, and that's it. 
there's not going to be anybody around her who can raise her up, and she cannot raise up herself. But we know the rest of the story, right? I mean, that's a hard word, and if I'm, if I'm in Bethel and I'm listening to this or I'm Amos, that weighs heavy on the heart, but, but we know God will raise her up, right? We know that, that God will bring life, breathe life into these dead bones, right? God, God will bring the exiles back. He will restore the temple, but beyond that, what is God going to do? God is going to then bring His own Messiah to this very place, and that Messiah will die, but that Messiah will then be raised up. So, so we know the end of the story, so there's more to it, but as, but as far as this people is concerned and Amos's message, no, this is a done deal. Notice how he then kind of changes imagery here. It's kind of military language. Verse 3, for thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. This, this is speaking of armies that are going out to meet whoever in battle. Send, a, send an army of a thousand out, and guess what you're getting back? A hundred. Send that hundred out, you're getting ten back. It, it's, 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 a, it's a symbolic way of describing utter destruction. There'll be a remnant. Not, not everybody will die or be exiled. There will be those who will remain. There will be a scattered few. But this, this, this is really describing, you know, just utter devastation, destruction that, that, that really can hardly be comprehended. And again, Amos is telling them this is coming, this is inevitable. So prepare yourselves, lament now for what is the pain to come. So then beginning in verse 4 and going through verse 17, I think we have at least three problems uh, that, that are present in Israel that should motivate this lament. Three problems in Israel that, should be, that motivate the lament. And we'll look at the first one tonight. So number one, a lament over their refusal of God's invitation. One of, one of the ways I would contend that the virgin has fallen, one of the ways in which she has uh, committed the proverbial last straw, is she has failed again and again and again to respond to God's invitation to return. Now, you're going to have to stick with me for just a moment as I flesh this out, uh, but, but I, I think that is the way we end up taking the next set of verses. So notice what it says in verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing." So, so you might hear this and think, all right, pastor, you've taught so far, because I've been listening, all right, everything you've said, this is inevitable, judgment's coming, yet here we have God once again extending the invitation, saying, seek me and live. So what gives? Is it inevitable or is it not inevitable? Yes. Said good answer, pastor. You do that to us all the time. All right. Okay. Technically speaking, 
Maybe we say it this way. Technically speaking, this invitation to seek God and live, yes, that would then result, if it were true repentance, God would restore. He is still telling them, this is the way out. But they're not going to do it. We know they're not going to do it. They've already not done it previously. They're not going to do it here. I would contend this invitation stands as far more, it's far more an indictment against Israel than it is an invitation to them that they'll actually accept. It is another way for Amos, for the prophet to bring out to these folks in Israel, especially these these pompous and perverted religious leaders, especially a message to them who should have known better, who should have known the means to get back right with God. They knew what Deuteronomy said. You and I could know what Deuteronomy said. It's not hard. There's not tricky theology about it. If you find yourself facing the judgments of God, then you come to the temple and you pray, you humble yourself, you repent, and I'll heal your land. God promised that, but they never did it. In fact, chapter 4, we went through a number of examples God did this, but they did not return. God did that, but they did not return. God did this, but they did not return. It happened again and again and again. And so this serves far more as an indictment because he's he's still extending the invitation, but they're not going to take it. This shows the depth of their depravity and the hardness of their heart. So I, I would say very much what Amos is giving us here is a reason why they should lament is because there's a real simple way out of this. But they're not going to take it. They're not going to avail themselves of God's grace and mercy. Does that not then strike us as utter foolishness, right? Here's the, here's the solution. The solution is simple, but have you ever known anybody that had a simple solution in front of them but decided to take the hard way? I know none of you have ever done it. I mean other people that you know, right? This is exactly where Israel is. I'm not saying it's necessarily easy to deal with sin, but the fundamental solution God offers here is simple. And when he says, seek me and live, you know, he's not being like mystical or weird here. He's saying, take advantage of all the resources that you have been given. Come to know me in the way I've revealed myself to you in the word. That's what it means to seek him, to come to him in light of his word, come to him in prayer, come to him in worship and in worship with God's people. Seek me. Come and be in relationship and fellowship with me as ordered by the Word of God, and you'll live. And notice, though, what he, what he addresses, but, but don't seek Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba. These are the places of false worship. These were the cultic locations that they set up idolatrous altars and, and altars that were against the law. And so he's saying, so don't, don't go after these other gods. Stop setting your affections on things that do not exist. Seek me. God is saying, love me, obey me, and you'll live. Confess your sin, repent, come clean, recommit yourself to the covenant. All that is contained in the language of seeking me. Stop worshiping at Bethel. Stop worshiping at Gilgal. Stop worshiping at Beersheba. The best thing they could do, they could go to all those locations and burn those things to the ground, get a group together, march down to Jerusalem, confess even in the midst of the nation of Judah, we've sinned and disobeyed God, and now we are here to make our sin offering in the temple of God according to the law of God, and the history of Israel would have been much different. 
but they're not going to do any of it. Not a bit. Instead, what are they going to do? They're going to keep going to Bethel, they're going to keep going to Gilgal, and they're going to keep going to Beersheba. God says, don't do this. Seek me and live. Turn from these other things. Verse 6 then presses that even more. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with no one to quench it in Bethel. The reference there, by the way, to to Joseph, that's another way to describe Israel. Uh, To describe the house of Joseph would encompass two tribes, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. These were the two largest tribes of the ten northern kingdoms, uh, uh, of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. And in fact, you may recall this from Hosea. Hosea's preferred term to describe Israel is to just use Ephraim. So, so to say house of Joseph, he's not saying anything specific about the house of Joseph. It's a catch-all. He's talking about Israel. So, so he's saying, so turn, seek God and live, otherwise fire is coming upon you to devour you, and there's not going to be, to be anybody to quench it at Bethel, M- meaning I'm locating some of my fiercest and hottest wrath for the center of your idolatry. Those false gods aren't going to be able to stop it from happening. So, so turn, trust, believe in the Lord. And so he goes on in verse 7 to identify just exactly what they have done. We've seen this already, but note, note again. You who turn justice to wormwood. The word wormwood means bitterness. And so you who take that which should be sweet and, and satisfying, right? J- justice should be satisfying when we see it happen. And is that not the case, right? I mean, even in our day, if, if, if we do see justice in some fashion, aren't we satisfied by it? We should be. If we, if we see evildoers receiving the consequence of their evil actions, there's a kind of satisfaction to that. Maybe I'm alone in that, all right? But I, but I think I'm not. I, I think we all think yes, Justice, genuine justice can be sweet and satisfying. They've turned it bitter because they've perverted it. They've taken that which is just and they've now engaged in injustice. As we talked before, don't, don't allow 21st century critical race theory language uh, to, to warp what the word justice means. I, I mean, it's almost a word you, you almost can't use it anymore because it comes so loaded. You know, in, th- in this case, it is, it is literally speaking about making sure that which is just and right is that which is um, uh, honored and preferred, and, and instead of taking advantage of the most disadvantaged because you are in a position of power, that is an injustice. This is what they were doing in Israel. They were going after the poor because they were poor and unable to do anything about it. That they, they, were, they were targeting them. This is what he's saying. So you've, you've taken justice and you've perverted it. You've turned it. And he goes on to say, and, you, and the, the next thing they do, this is a really interesting phrase, and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. You know what I think of when I hear that phrase? They've laid righteousness to rest. What, what, what do we mean when we say we've laid somebody to rest? It means they've died. You've killed righteousness. <laughs> That's what he's saying. You've killed it. You, you, have, you have put 
righteousness to death in the earth because of what you have done. Rather than exalting it, you've you've actually turned it. And so there's no righteousness among you. So again, I, I think what he's doing here, what Amos provides us here, is a reason to lament. He does offer out this invitation. This is an invitation. And were the people to avail themselves of it, God would restore them. But they're not. They're not going to do it. And so they should lament. They should lament because this is, this is who God is, by the way. God is a God of such tremendous mercy, patience, and love. But we spurn it all the time. Even God's people can spurn it, take it for granted, right? He he really is, I think, again, bringing another type of indictment. Here was a simple solution. God's immense mercy. He's willing to save and restore them, but they just aren't going to do it. They're going to turn into their own hearts. They're going to follow their own path, and they're going to face the judgment to come. So, lament over their refusal of God's invitation. All right, next week, we'll jump ahead. Don't say I didn't ever let you out early. Look at that. Six minutes, mark that down, all right? Because if you think Sunday, he is six minute, oh, that's left over from Wednesday. All right. Well, we will continue next week, all right? Uh, take a look at two more features here of why they are to lament and, uh, and continue, I hope, to, to be encouraged and instructed by the Word of God. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your people. Well, we, ha- we have been privileged to be able to pray and to study your Word. We do thank you for this Word. We do thank you for your mercy and patience. We thank you, God, for such a simple yet profound invitation to seek you and live. So may, may that be our own commitment to give ourselves to seeking you to pursuing those paths that you've laid out for us, whereby we can have fellowship with you. God, that we would not take these for granted, and that we would not treat them cheaply. Forgive us when we have done so, that we might be a faithful people of God. And much like Israel, we, we believe there is nothing but potential before us. We believe that to know that we could be used by You to be a witness for the sake of Your gospel and for Your own glory. So, Father, may, may we continue to be shaped into a people that, that serve You in that way. I thank You for these who've gathered, their willingness to, to give of their own time in the middle of the week to be a part of praying and studying together. I pray they would know Your blessing upon them. Grant them wisdom. As, as they fulfill the roles you have given to them in the days to come, they might walk in faith and obedience to you and all for your glory. Gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.